Sometimes we review this reality in our new city community. What's Jesus like right now? We just spent like two years, three years in the Gospel of Luke. That is a good picture of what he's like in part right now, but not the full picture. That's a picture of Jesus, as theologians would say, in his state of humiliation, not yet in his state of exaltation. Now Christ ascended to the throne. He looks different than he does in Luke. What does he look like now? Let me read it to you from Luke, uh, Revelation chapter 1. This is a picture with elevated language, but a picture of the uh, brilliance with which Jesus exists now. This is the Apostle John writing. He hears a voice behind him. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe like when with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him... I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the key of death and Hades. That's what Jesus is like now. This morning, we're going to talk briefly about what he is doing now in that exalted state. And just to shorten this up, he is tending to the church. We're in the last of a five-sermon five sermon, sermon series on the church, the church. And we're kind of pushing back against a, a cultural problem we have, an impoverishment we have as Westerners and very individual in our thinking. There's some real benefit to that. But we tend to see the church as sort of a collection of individuals. Individual Christians come together, and that makes up the church. That's not untrue, it's just not all true. The Bible kind of sees it that way, but as much or more sees it from a different way. That the church itself is a complete unit and our, uh, our individual lives has a, as much to do with being plunged into this new reality called the church, the people of God. And we've said several times that when the Bible envisions the church, it, enga- it envisions a gathered people. In fact, the word church means the assembly, assembling together. So th- when it's, the Bible says the church, it's envisioning people of collected bodies all over the world now. And so we've been looking at what the Bible talks about with the church. We saw that the, the church, local, all over, is the assembly of the firstborn. We saw that from uh, Hebrews chapter 12. That the church is the earthly expression of the heavenly reality. It is, if you will, the shadow of the heavenly reality. We saw that the church is the household of God. The church, uh, Taylor taught us, the church is the body of Christ. Christ's body, that's how we are talked about in in little gatherings and then all those little gatherings together throughout the world. The body of Christ. Last week we saw that the church is called the bride of Christ, treasured and cherished by Jesus as a husband would ought to cherish and treasure his bride, right? Today, we're looking at the, the fifth one, the final one for now. We can only bear so much of this, right? It's hard for us to think corporately and not individually. The church is the light of the world, the light, the light. Jesus famously says in the Sermon on the Mount, which I put in your insert there, uh, in Matthew chapter 5, 
you, and that is the corporate you, the, the you all together, y'all, youans, you all are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before the others, before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I actually stopped reading too soon in that Revelation 1 passage because it goes on to say, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and here's what's important for us. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. We're about to read a passage of Scripture where it talks about lampstands. Lampstands in this Revelation passage are local churches. What's the purpose of a lamp? Jesus already told us, to give light. Now, we want to... We Understand that this is a type of light that needs taken care of, tended. I just bought from Costco a, a light from my basement shop, and it's an LED light rated for 50,000 hours. Now, no more often than I use that light, I will never see the end of that light in this life. I mean, it's like, it's like three or four hours a week that I might use it. That's, I don't know, how many years? That's 100 years. I don't know. It's, it's a lot, right? You turn it on, you don't think about it, the LED just comes on. You never have to pay attention. You just have to remember where the light switch is. That's all I have to do for that light ever for the rest maybe of my life. That is not the kind of light we're talking about here. This is the kind of light we're talking about here. In the first, it would, it's not even a candle. It would be those ancient um, little clay pots. They're maybe about that big. They go on top of a candle stand, and you put as purified oil as possible in it, and it has a wick. And if the oil runs out, you've got to put more oil in it. If the wick, wick runs out, you've got to replace it. If the wick gets too long and it's smoking too much, you've got to trim the wick. It has to be tended to. One of the things the exalted Jesus is doing right now on uh, October 17th, 2021, is tending to the light, which is the church. Remember, Jesus steps into the world. John 1 says that the light has come into the world, into the darkness. Jesus on his ascension, he ascends and he sends his spirit to his church. Then the church begins to be called the light of the world, taking up Jesus' mantle to in our worship in way and way of life to be a contrast society, light in darkness. But that isn't something you just turn on and leave on and it, it, it sustains itself. It has to be tended by Jesus. And that is what we are seeing this morning. Uh, I realize from the first service this is an overly ambitious project we're embarking on this morning. We're going to do the scripture reading from Revelation 2 and 3. And somebody in the first service gave me grief because it covers these entire inside pages. And I pointed out, you forgot one page. It's on the back too, right? The Apostle Paul tells Timothy to give attention to the public reading of the word. We are going to do that. Sometimes people say, I, feel, I, really feel, I really feel God spoke to me in the service today. I promise you if you listen, God will speak to you in the service today. From Revelation 2 and 3, this is the word of God. All right? So we're going to hear it. I want you to listen for the patterns that you see in it. Jesus addresses the churches in very similar ways, and yet he customizes the, the, the message for each one. And it, we have this refrain in there, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, as if to say, listen and apply it to your church and then yourself as appropriate. So I'm going to have Julie Williams come and read this. Just a couple of setups here. This is elevated language in the book of Revelation. Get a good study Bible, read through it. We're going to look at this from the 10,000-foot view. I'm not going to talk about the details after she's done. It mentions the angels of the churches. That's probably the pastors, not because we're so angelic, but because the word means messenger. 
and the, the one who's responsible for bringing that word of God to the church. That's who this is to. And um, this is uh, meant to be a letter that was writ- read in one church and passed on to the next church. The order of the churches, seven churches, is actually the male root of Asia Minor. They were to read it one week and copy it and pass it on to the next week. So everybody got to say what Jesus said about the other churches too. So, um, Julie, thank you. Revelation chapters 2 and 3. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. 
But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works." But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have, learned what some, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, I say to you, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces." even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy." The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out from the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming to the whole world to try those who dwell in the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God in heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works, 
you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing, realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove in discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the reading of God. Thank you, Julie, for over two services, investing 20 minutes of your morning reading publicly from Scripture. Um, now, normally we do expositions of Scripture. This is several hours of exposition. We're just not doing that this morning. Uh, this is more of like flying over a mountain uh, uh, series of mountains and looking at the, the shape and nature of it. That's all I want to do. Let's look at the pattern of how Jesus engages the churches here. I put the semi-outline on the front. All this is very personal engagement. If you notice, Revelation 2.1 says, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now what were the lampstands? The churches. This is a picture not of Jesus standing off and looking. Not just sort of writing letters and sending them, but walking among them, right? Walking, being attentive, paying attention to what's going on with the lampstands. Lampstands tending to them. Tending to them. This is simply here Jesus communicating that he's actually personally attentive to his churches. He's personally interested in his local churches. Um, it, it matters to him the words we say and sing and preach and pray. It matters to him what we believe. It matters to him how we speak with each other. It matters to him the quality of our relationships. These aren't things that are just byproducts of individual Christians coming together. These are things to which Jesus is personally attentive and personally takes delight in or lovingly brings correction to. Jesus cares about what is happening in his local churches. And part of our invitation these last five weeks is to lift our eyes just a little bit to see, in spite of all the flaws of the churches, what this thing is. And this is an entity about which Jesus cares deeply and attends to personally with his own presence. And we can't just assume in a broken world things will continue just to instant on and stay on, like the LED light, right? There is attentiveness required by Jesus to his churches. And he's giving attention to his different churches here. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what is appropriate for New City or the church of which you're a part or and your own life, right? He, he tends the church with his personal presence. He tends the church with encouragement. And these are all customized aspects, right? He says the same pattern with each church, but it's a little different. He knows the churches. It begins um, 
to the churches. He says to all of them, I know, I know, I see. I see you, church in Ephesus. I see you. I see you, church in Sardis. I see you, church at 345 North Kitley. I see you. I know. I know what's going on. And to uh, five of the seven, he begins the letter with encouragement. I know. And then he unfolds some encouraging thing. And to a, a sixth church, he, he gets to the encouragement eventually. And the seventh church gets no encouragement whatsoever. We'll talk about that in a second. But, um, you know, he, he says to Ephesus, I know your works. I know your patience. I know your endurance. In Smyrna, I know, I see you. I understand what you're going through. I know you're being slandered and struggling financially. That is not escaping my notice. And if you notice here, uh, he gives encouragement to churches where there's a lot of doctrinal and moral compromise going on also. Right? But he... Church in Pergamum, if I can sort of paraphrase what Jesus was saying here. You guys have like zero discernment skills. Terrible. And your morality is like hovering just above dead. But let me start to say this first. You hold fast my name, even in the face of death. So what he's doing, like he's, he's calling out work of his spirit that's resident in the people. Like, these five of the seven churches are not in good shape. They've got significant issues going on. And Jesus says, I want to start with this. I see the work of my spirit in your church. I see that. In fact, he ends, too, like with hope as well, encouragement, encouraging people to hold on. He begins with saying, I see the work of God going on in you. There is in every church. Like uh, Taylor's already mentioned it. We long for new creation, though we taste of new creation already. So we talk about the, the kingdom of God as something that's already here, but not fully here. It's already, but not yet. It's true in our world. It's true in our lives. We, the kingdom of God is already, if we're in Christ by faith, we are united to Jesus. We have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit. We sense power. We sense the love of Christ. And we sense sin in our own life because it's not yet here fully. Already, not yet. It's true in every single church as well. There's signs of life, signs of the kingdom already and not yet. And there's also, it's not yet full, so there's lots of other issues going on. Jesus is pointing out this, but we can learn from Jesus here. With six of the seven, he begins with the already. That's super encouraging, right? They all got issues, but he's like, let me tell you what I see of the work of the Spirit in your life first. Hebrews 3 says, encourage each other daily so that you may not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We are so good in our culture, and I'm so good at pointing out what's wrong. I can see it in culture, so I think, because I'm discerning. I can see it in other people. Harder to see it myself, but I can see it there too. And yet, the Scripture says, encourage each other daily. So when we, if, if, like, we commit to encouraging each other daily... That's awesome, but it's not novel because we're only doing what Jesus is already doing right here. He begins by saying, I see you, I know, let me encourage you and identify the work of the Spirit going on in your midst. So he gives him customized encouragement. But to five of the seven, he also gives a customized warning. 
Right? Five of these churches hear these sobering words, but I have this against you. But I have this against you. Uh, the churches in Smyrna and Philadelphia didn't hear that. They were also the weakest. Maybe they were the most dependent. Maybe they were healthy because they were weak and dependent on the Lord. Maybe they just couldn't hear, bear to hear any criticism. I don't know. Um, but why does Jesus do this with his churches? Why does he do this with us? Why would he bring this kind of correction and rebuke and discipline into our life? He actually tells us at the end of the message to the very worst church on the list, if you turn over to three, uh, Revelation 3.19 to Laodicea, Um, and by the way, Laodicea gets zero encouragement. So just think about this, the, the setup here. It's, it's a, the, the mail route. Six churches get encouragement, and they're waiting. So imagine them on the first Sunday morning, the seventh week after it goes out, getting this letter like, oh, the church in Philadelphia gets encouragement. Ephesus, they're just waiting. For like, well, what's he going to say about us? And he reads all the way through it. There's no encouraging thing about Laodicea. I'm sure they're like, I wonder if the pastor missed something in the letter, right? So anyway... But why would, why would God call Laodicea or any other church on the carpet like that or any of the people that he loves? Verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline because I love you. Remember, we're starting with being uh, uh, encouragement, the work of the spirits in your midst. And my intention is to hold you to the end. In the middle of that, I want to give you some encouragement, but some rebuke as well because I love you. If you have young children... When we have young children, I guess it's true, when you're, however your kids, old your kids are, though you do it differently, right? You bring correction, eventually it's just suggestion, I know that as they get older, but um, we correct our children not for our convenience. Now, sometimes, truthfully, we do. But we're not so, when we're loving them, we correct them for their good because we love them. We say, we see something in your life, that if that habit, if that activity, if that way of being, way of life were to play itself out, would be a curse in your life and a curse to your community. And because of, that, I, because of that, I want to bring some correction into your life because I love you. Not because I don't love you, but because I do. Jesus is saying to his churches, the reason I'm bringing correction, right, rebuke and discipline, those are corrective terms, is because I love you. You are, you are designed, the design is for you to be the light and there's just a lot of smoke you're giving off right now. I want to correct you, I want to trim that wick, I want to, I want to refresh that oil, something, I'm bringing correction because I love you. And he goes after two things, two things here, that are still problematic for the church. Still a temptation for the church in any age. I'm not making specific application here. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. We do that. Maybe this is for the elders. Like, we think about this, right? We pray this into our congregation. One, there's a, Jesus takes on formalism here. Formalism is being satisfied with the outside form of something without having the heart. Ephesians, or Ephesians. The church at Ephesus, but that's uh, Revelation 2, verse 2. He says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Guys, I know that you're tough. Whew. Good work. I know that your theology is really tight. I'm for that. But verse 4, but this I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love you have at first. 
It is quite possible to be tough and earnest and do ministry and have theological precision and not have love inside it. Now, we don't know if this is love for Christ or love for one another, but Jesus is saying, return to it. (laughs) All the love. Right? Have the outside form, yes, but don't stop there. Don't even start there. Let, let the love of, that I have for you and you have for each, each other drive you to the external realities. Beware of the formalism. That's a possibility. I get that. The church in Sardis, in chapter 3 and verse 1, I know your works. You have the reputation for being alive. Why do you have that reputation? Because you do alive things. But you are dead. You're dead. I, I, I love the way you serve and exercise hospitality and help one another. But it's, it's, it's in form only. Something going on in the inside is dead. You're not doing this from the fact that I'm radically hospitable to you and welcome you into my family, therefore you're welcoming others. Maybe you're just doing it to keep up appearances. Maybe you're just doing it so you can be a, a good Christian or better than that church down the road. It's not doing it. All Jesus is saying here is, guys, beware formalism. It's so easy and so deadly. Formalism is the first thing he takes on. Right? This, the heart matters, whether it's the heart of a church or the heart of a person. He also takes on the idols of that particular culture, which I think, you know, if you, if you read the prophets of Israel, these three idols come up over and over and over again. Power, porneia, which is sexual immorality, and comfort. Power, porneia, and comfort. You can't get through three chapters of Isaiah without seeing those things, or Jeremiah, or Ezekiel, or Revelation 2 and 3. Uh, in the church at Pergamum and Thyatira, he talks about the teachings of Balaam and Jezebel, maybe also the Nicolaitans. This is where you just get a good study Bible and read the notes. We're not going to talk about this right now. Just read it, right? The ESV study Bible, NIV, whatever. Get it, read it, it's good. Um, the teachings of those two or maybe three had something to do with convincing the church. Like, in this situation, it's cool to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, Christians actually were free to do that, except in this environment, what that would have meant was they were participating in the worship of Caesar. And, the wor- and that got them into the guilds and allowed them to have the, the approval of the power structures of their society. And they were, what this is saying is that the church was not trusting in the power of the Holy Spirit to buoy them up. They needed also the right political party to help them. They needed Rome on their side. They needed the powers that be to strengthen them, or they just thought they couldn't make it. The temptation to power has been, is, and will be a temptation for the people of God when we have power already because of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. Sexual immorality, right? The Roman culture was a licentious culture. In some ways, even makes our culture today look tame by comparison. Adultery, prostitution, homosexuality, rampant. Porneia is just the biblical word for sexual immorality. Any, any sexual relationship outside of covenant marriage between a man and a woman, it's porneia, right? The Bible's very clear on this. And what happened is these groups, Balaam, groups of Balaam, of Jezebel, whether that was a group or a one prophetess teacher, maybe the Nicolaitans had come in and said, look, uh, we know what the Scriptures taught, the Hebrew Scriptures have taught for 2,000 years, but we have some fresh insight that will be different this time. 
We know the secret truth, right? We know the secret truth. And we can still find people today that say, well, well, look, I know what the Scripture teaches and what Jesus is teaching right here, but you're not understanding something. There's some secret truth that you need here that all of a sudden makes things that the culture say are great and the Scriptures say cannot happen palatable to the people of God, right? Um, it's not a new problem. It's going on right here. Uh, and the third idol is comfort. This is the one where the church is most criticized for Laodicea. You would think it would be the one what sexual immorality. Okay, Jesus says that's a problem, but Laodicea, they get no commendation whatsoever. Chapter 3, verse 15. I know your works. So they're probably like, yeah, our good works. So good. Thank you, Jesus, for noticing. You are neither cold nor hot. Wait, in that culture, that would have meant you're useless. Cold water is useful. Hot water is useful. But lukewarm water is good for growing bacteria. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Literally, you make me want to vomit. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Translation, your comfort is killing you. You're doing really well if you just ask yourself. Your, your, your attendance is up, your, your uh, finances are up, everybody's happy, everybody's successful. You even got the approval of the culture. Isn't things great? Aren't things great? But in this, the root has been cut. In your delight in all these good things, you have sacrificed dependence on me, church in Laodicea. Guys, that is scary as a pastor of a church in 21st century America. You know, if you look at our church budget right now, we're ahead of projected budget on the income side again for another year. I'm thankful for that. At the end of the year, we tend to scrape it off and give it away. But, boy, it's easy to say, Things are going pretty good, and things are going good. It's easy also to say, maybe we don't need to be so dependent. Actually, we would never say that. We would just drift away. And so this is a call to you to pray for your church. It's a call for your elders to pray for your church and your pastors to pray that we may not become complacent in a culture that breeds complacency. It is devastatingly dangerous, even deadly to a church. And Jesus loves us enough to tell us. Isn't that great? Okay. So let me just be prophetic just for a little bit, a little prophet hat. These three, these three idols, right, power, sexuality, and comfort do not go away. They will not go away. Churches that embrace the cultural ideals of power, sexuality, or comfort, it may go well for you and that it might be comfortable for you. You may win the approval of culture. You will lose Jesus. That's not a good trade. And we can trace this through church history. Movements that have embraced cultural deviation issues of power and sexuality and comfort, each time they said, it'll be different this time. It, it was, we're different. And each time, they are wrong. Every single time. You can look right now in America and say, what is the commonality of the movements that are hemorrhaging people and shrinking? These three things right here, or one of them at least, right? It's, it's a sobering thought as a church, okay? And Jesus loves us enough to tell us. That's awesome. And then he gives this customized call to gospel life. There's a dis different description of Jesus to each church. 
according to what they need. Not because Jesus is customizable, but because he's immeasurable. And that means there's always something of him that's applicable to bring into a church situation or a family situation or a personal situation at every single time. We just have to have our eyes open to it. Like So to one, he's the first and the last, the living one who has died and now has come back to life. To, to another church, he's got the, the sharp two-edged sword of his mouth, right? To another, he has eyes like a flame of fire and feet like burnished brawn. What do they need that addresses their situation? Jesus is that, not because he can be flexed to whatever people need, but because he is everything, and we have but to bring him to bear on the situation. So just a little personal application here. Let's bring Jesus into the reality of the brokenness of our life wherever we happen to be, like these churches are called to do. Deal with Jesus as he is where you really are. That's our call. Maybe it's one of these three idols. Maybe you're just totally fearful that you don't have enough power because of the right job. Or you don't have enough comfort in your life or you are mired down in some sexual sin or pornography or whatever it is. Be honest about where you are and meet Jesus right there. Ask him to come into that right there at that spot. He is immeasurable in his goodness and his ability to address us and deal with us and love us. Those places of the not yet, sin, brokenness, sorrow, sadness, lament, frustration, that's exactly where Jesus delights to meet us. How do we get there? Oh, these easy words, right? Hard reality, easy words. He says to these churches, remember, repent, return. We simply turn. We turn. Turn to him and away from death over and over and over again. And finally here, let me close with this here. This worst church, Laodicea, he gives an in additional invitation. And it, therefore, if it's good for them, it's got to be good for everybody else. Uh, this, this church, they've got nothing to commend themselves to the Lord. He's kind of read in the, the, the riot act of like, there's a problem, there's a problem, there's a problem, there's a problem. You need to repent. And before anything happens, this is beautiful, 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Has, has the church of Laodicea gotten their act together? No. They're still stunned from the fact that they didn't get encouraged, right? They go, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? Jesus is like, let me in. I want to come and have fellowship right with you, right where you are right now. I want to be with you. Right? Don't go clean yourself up first. Let me enter and do that work. Sometimes we just keep Jesus at arm's length because we want to clean things up and get them straight and then let him in. And all he's saying here is like, that doesn't work and that's not the plan. I want to come into your church. He's not knocking on the door of the heart of an unbeliever. This is the church he's talking to. His people saying, I want access to you. I want deeper access to you. Not because you don't know me, but because you do. And I want you to experience more of me. I want to come in and give you true comfort in place of that false comfort that you think you might have. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. You don't have to get better first. In fact, you can't. And then he ends with this customized promise to each one. It begins the same to the one who conquers, I will give what they need. Right? Uh, and conquering there is enduring. It's holding on. A good friend of my wife's uh, a few months ago gave her a necklace that said hold fast on it. 
Okay, that's a reference to Hebrews. But they were also reading, and then she passed on that necklace to another person, who, a friend of hers who was in some distress. Uh, it came about because um, sailors in former centuries would get the, uh, the words hold fast tattooed on their knuckles. I suppose these women friends, including my wife, thought it was better to have a necklace than knuckle tattoos, which I'm totally okay with her not having knuckle tattoos as my wife, not in general, you can get them, but not my wife. Um, hold fast. Sailors would get that tattooed on their knuckles to remind them to hold the rigging in a storm so they did not die. Right? They were also superstitious. They thought they had it on them, they wouldn't die. Right? But they would need to hold fast so they could see it, and they're holding the rigging. So others could see it, and they could just hold on long enough, they could make it. And that's part of what the Scripture is saying here. Hold fast. You will conquer by holding fast, and then you will be blessed. But that's not all it's saying. We hold fast as those who are held fast. That's why Jesus is speaking to the church anyway. Those I love, I reprove and discipline. Why am I correcting you? Why am I encouraging you? This is how I'm holding you. You hold fast as those who are held fast. That's the call. That's the gospel. And that's why we come to the communion table every single week. This is the a visible uh, multi-sensory picture of the communion table of the reality that Jesus is inclined and intends to hold fast to his people. If you're in Christ Jesus by faith, this is you. You actually are held fast. The way we celebrate communion here is we, will, we get the elements and bring them back to our seat, then we partake together. If you're in Christ Jesus by faith, this table is open to you and we encourage you to come. We do it this way. We will uh, come from the outside around to the table there and then back in on both sides. Get the bread, get the cup. There's white grape juice and red wine. So choose accordingly and go grab those and come back to your seat. Let me pray and then I'll invite you to get the elements. Uh, Jesus, we love you. We need you. We have you. Sometimes we're blind to that. You are never blind to us. You see us, you love us, you have us, you hold us. We pray that you would communicate that reality to our souls now in the table as you've done so in your word. Through Christ, we come to the table now. In Jesus' name, amen. Please get up and get the elements as you're prepared to do so.